So, ever read a story in the Bible, and I'd like to see your hands, that depressed you? Yeah, we're at one of those today. <laughs> I read the story, and you know, usually when I teach a portion of scripture, I read it over and over and over and over. And that's great with the fun stories, but with the discouraging stories, it's just like, oh, hit me again, hit me again. I felt dirty and depressed after reading this story. And then I had, of course, study the story and make a lesson out of it, and I continue to feel dirty and depressed. And then, of course, now I've got to teach the story. I taught it yesterday, and teaching it made me feel dirty and depressed. So, welcome to Book of Life, where you too can feel dirty and depressed. <laughs> we, we've been talking about King David. And one of the things I've been telling you about David over and over is he was a good man. But he was a man. And last week we looked that David fell. And he fell hard. And the story about his fall, adultery and murder, was bad enough. But God pronounced judgment on him. And basically said he's going to reap what he sowed. He's going to be punished in the same way that he hurt others. And now we're going to see that being fulfilled. Let me remind you of the prophecy, and then we'll look at the fulfillment of them. So, David sinned. It said, you struck down Uriah the Hittite. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So God said, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. It's a fourfold judgment, okay? First judgment is because you killed with the sword, the sword's never going to depart from your house. That's the first. David harmed Uriah's family. So the consequence, God says, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Second aspect of judgment. David stole Uriah's wife. Third aspect of judgment. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who's close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Fourth aspect of judgment. David tried to hide a sin. So God said, you did it in secret, but I'll do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. And now in chapters 13 through 19, we get to see the fulfillment of this justice, this judgment on David. And it's one of those miserable stories of the Bible. But it happened. God decided it needed to be told. So I'm going to tell it to you. And hopefully we can go home getting some redemption out of this story. Because for the people involved in the story, it's just depressing and miserable. Here's what happened. David had multiple wives. He had multiple children. Some of them were full children. Some of them were half-siblings, that sort of thing. So he had a son named Amnon. And he had another son named Absalom. Absalom, by the way, means father of peace, which is rather ironic after you hear the rest of the story. So Amnon and Absalom were like, I guess, half-brothers. Absalom's sister, so that would have been Amnon's, I guess, half-sister, he fell in love with her. Her name is Tamar. She was beautiful, and he pined for her, even though it was his sister. Now, Maybe they weren't raised in the same household, didn't know each other like you know your siblings, and you get that, ew, gross factor. But it's still wrong. Stay away from your close relatives. The Torah is very clear on that. Stay away from your close relatives. He made himself sick over her because he loved her and he knew he couldn't have her. So one day, 
A friend of his says, man, you've been moping around. You've been sick. What's wrong with you? Come here, let me tell you. Can you keep a secret? I'm in love with my sister Tamar, and I know I can't have her. That's easy to fix. Here's what you need to do. You need to pretend you're sick, really sick. And when your dad comes to visit you, the king, tell him all you want is your sister Tamar to come take care of you. Is that too much to ask? And then we'll get everybody out of the house, and she's all yours. And that's exactly what he did, and he raped his sister. Great story, huh? Something you want to read in your morning devotions, I'm sure. Well, she goes home, tells her brother Absalom what happened. He says, you come live with, live with me, I'll take care of you. And he said nothing to Amnon for three years. I don't mean he ignored him. I mean he acted as if it didn't happen. He didn't demand justice, apparently, nothing. Three years. That's a long time. Enough time for maybe Amnon to think they gotten over it when Absalom decides to host a shearing party and he invites all of his family and especially his brothers. And when he wasn't sure his brothers could come, he goes to King David and says, please send, send all my brothers, including Amnon. Now maybe David's thinking, huh, maybe this is reconciliation. I don't know, but David sent him. Well, Absalom had already had it all planned out. When I give you guys the signal, pull out your swords, kill Amnon. So they're at the party, they're feasting, there's party time, lifting a glass, and Absalom said, now! And they attacked and killed the brother. All the other brothers fled home weeping. Word got to King David that all the brothers were killed by Absalom. David was thoroughly distraught. But then he was informed, no, it's just Amnon. Still distraught, but that's a lot better than all the sons being killed. In the meantime, Absalom fled the country. He banished himself because I'm sure he was worried about the king's justice. Speaking of the king's justice, where was the king's justice? Why didn't David deal with Amnon? This shouldn't have been Absalom's problem. Something wasn't right. But the Bible is silent as to why David didn't do anything. Is this another occasion where David screwed up? I think so. But to us, this is just a story. But put yourself into the family. How would you feel if this happened in your family? Oh, how, how do you make a decision to deal with something like that? So I'm not going to say David was an evil king because he didn't deal with this. I'm sure the man was broken, distraught, out of his mind with grief and frustration and disgust. And, but nevertheless, so Absalom flees. He's gone for three years. And jo, uh, Joab, David's commander and friend, orchestrates this big thing to get Absalom back home. Tricks David into thinking he's talking about somebody else, and then David says that person should come home. He said, well, I'm really talking about your son. He goes, all right, bring him home. So he brings him back to Jerusalem, but David refuses to see him for two more years. So now we've got five years 
that he hasn't seen his son, his son hasn't seen him. So Absalom goes to Joab and says, I've been back two years, my dad still won't see me, do something. Joab stops visiting Absalom, won't return his letters, won't return his phone calls. He says, fine, go burn down Joab's field. So his servants went and burned down Joab's field. He comes over all mad, why'd you burn down my field? Why won't you return my phone calls? Why don't you answer my letters? I've been here two years. You brought me back. You should have left me banished. Help me see my dad. Joab says, you're right. I'm sorry. Okay. So Joab goes back to David. Father and son reunite. Kiss. You're thinking, wow. Until the next chapter. Chapter 14. David had refused to see him for two more years. Chapters 15 through 17. Amnon. Well, let me not tell you. Let me just read. 2 Samuel chapter 15. It's going to be up on the screen for you. After this, Absalom provided a chariot and horses for himself and an escort of 50 men. He'd get up early and go and stand by the road at the city gate. Whenever someone came there with a dispute that he wanted the king to settle, Absalom would call him over and ask him where he was from. After the man had told him what tribe he was from, Absalom would say, Look, the law is on your side. But there's no representative of the king to hear your case. And then he would add, Oh, how I wish I were a judge. Then anyone who had a dispute or a claim could come to me and I'd give him justice. And when the man would approach Absalom, he'd bow down before him, but Absalom would reach out, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom did this with every Israelite who came to the king for judgment, and so he won their loyalty. And so he stole their hearts. You get the scenario? He's sitting right there at the city gate. Nobody can come see King David unless Absalom sees him first. They're coming to the king for justice. And Absalom, crown prince, says, hey, 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 I've never seen you here before. Where are you from? Ephraim, welcome to Judea. What brings you to Judea this fine day? By the way, where in Ephraim are you from? Oh, yeah, I got one of my favorite sheep there. It's a great town. Come here, buddy. Oh, you're the prince. Oh, no, don't bow down. We're just, I'm just a brother. I'm just, just, just like you. Come, have a seat. Sip a little tea. Tell me what brings you to Jerusalem today. Well, I have this dispute with my neighbor and this, this, this. Oh, yeah, you're right. That should be taken care of. But, oh, boy, king's too busy for the likes of you. If only I could handle your problems. If only somebody would make me the leader of Israel, all would be fine. Sorry, I do the best I can for you. You see what's happening? David and Absalom kiss. And in the next chapter, he starts a coup. The next verse, he starts a coup. What a scoundrel. The Bible goes out of its way to say Absalom was handsome. I've taught you that in the past. It's a significant thing in most cultures for leaders. He was charismatic. He was handsome. He was sympathetic and willing to help. I just want to help you out. Poor dad, he's overburdened. But maybe I can help you. Absalom was divisive, rebellious, mutinous, and a scum-sucking pig. He was a bad man. He looked good. He was handsome. He was nice. He was just offering help. He was stealing the hearts of people and sowing discord in Israel. He was a bad man. Well, after he won all the hearts of Israel, he had an official mutiny, a coup. 
He came after David with soldiers. David had to flee Jerusalem with his closest friends. Oh, are you feeling the love in this story just yet? It, it doesn't get any better. So David flees. He sets some men into place. He survives because one of the men he set into place to counsel Absalom, they were going to go right after David right then. And had they done that, they would have won and killed David. But the counselor said, no, no, I'm here to give you advice now. I wouldn't recommend you go after your dad right now. Don't forget, he's a mighty warrior, and he's got the mighty warriors with him. You go after him now, you just might lose. Build up a huge army first, then go get him, then you can't lose. He did that just to make time. And it's the time David needed to get away and survive. It was pretty smart of him. So David gathers his men under Joab, and they have to go to war. And David tells his men, especially Joab, he says, if you find my son in the battle, have mercy on him for my sake. Now, you don't send people to war and tell them not to kill the bad guy. How do you do that? Well, David, he won the war. His men won. And one of the soldiers found Absalom. He, his hair, he had massive hair, this guy. He got caught in a bush or something, and he was stuck. Like the horse ran right out from under him. He's like dangling there. And one of the guys came by and said, look, it's a royal pinata. <laughs> and they went and told Joab. And said, Joab said, why did you kill him? I'm not putting, touching the king's son. <laughs> Joab said, I'll do it. Joab went and whacked him down, killed the man. So word gets back to David. And David starts to weep and moan and wail. And all the soldiers who just had this amazing victory are like, not wanting to celebrate anymore because David's all bent out of shape. Joab was told the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning. Because on that day, the troops heard it said the king is grieving for his son. And the men stole into the city that day as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from a battle. The king covered his face and he cried aloud, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Why is he crying for the kid who just tried to kill him? For the same reason I'd be crying if my kid tried to kill me. I wouldn't be happy that he's dead. I'd be grieved over the whole episode from Amnon to the very day. I'd be broken, distraught, and ruined. And I'm sure David was too. But you just can't do that and lead a nation to war at the same time. You can't. You've got to be bigger than that. Then Joab went into the house of the king and he said, Today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons, your daughters, and your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you, and you hate those that love you. I bet you'd be happy today if all of us were dead and Absalom's still alive. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left to you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come upon you from your youth until now. You thought you had it hard today. You let this keep going, you're going to lose everything. Joab talked some serious sense into David. David washed his face. He quit crying. He went out. He congratulated and thanked the men and made the victory exactly what it was, a victory. It was a civil war. It was miserable and evil. 
But these men risked their lives to stop it and to protect the king and the kingdom, and they had victory. Now, don't you want to go home now and celebrate? <laughs> Such an uplifting story, Steve. Thanks for sharing that with us. Today's sermon is called The Consequences of Sin. There's not a set of chapters in the Bible that I can think of that show it better than these. We see sin after sin after sin and consequence after consequence after consequence. It starts off with Amnon, his lust and rape. How did that work out for you, Amnon? Well, I got executed by my own brothers. So was it worth it there, buddy? No. And it wasn't just Amnon. He destroyed the entire family. Look what happened because of it. And poor Tamar, she didn't just go home and get over this. Here's what the scripture says. Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. That's the last we hear of Tamar. Desolate, I looked up the word. Ruined, totally undone. Her life was over. Not only the emotional baggage that carried, but in that culture, she was no longer fit to be married. In that culture, all she wanted to do was be married and have children. Now she's like untouchable because she's been ruined. Well, I'm not saying the culture is right about that. I'm just telling you that's how it was. And so she just put on her grieving clothes and went home, spent the rest of her life being taken care of by her brother. Sad, sad story. So, Steve, what are the consequences of sin? Well, thus far, misery, desolation, and death. Sign me up. I want to do some more. So the question is, if those are the consequences of sin, why would anybody want to sin? Why would Amnon do what he did? He knew it was wrong. I'm thinking he probably didn't know what would happen after. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He knew it was wrong. But he didn't think, gee, if I do this, then this will happen, this will happen, this will happen, this will happen. No, he just lived like a dog, saw a bone he wanted, and went after it. Creature of instinct. Just did what he wanted to do, and damned be the consequences. Well, what were the consequences? He died, his sister was ruined, his family was destroyed, there was civil war, and many people died. Let me tell you something. We human beings, we sin because we want to. I used to think when I first read through the Bible that it was a book of rules. God's just like trying to stifle us. There's a rule about everything. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. And that's what people out there think. That Christianity, our faith is just a bunch of party poopers. We can't have any fun. Well, there's your fun. It's not a book of rules. It's a book of restraints to keep us from ruining ourselves. That's all it is. If we look at it as a rule to keep us from having fun, we're going to be an Amnon. We're going to be an Absalom. If we look at it as guidance from a loving father to keep us from ruining ourselves and our families, now we're going to have a life. Now we're going to live. Amnon's dead. Absalom is dead. Tamar is ruined. We don't have to sit and think through the consequences of our sin. All we have to do is obey God. If he says don't do it, don't do it. Something bad's going to come from it. You don't have to know what the thing is, just don't do it. It's kind of like when we raise our children, when they're real little. 
we tell them, you may not go out into the street. They don't fully understand, as a two-year-old, 35-mile-an-hour truck hitting them. They don't understand that. They just go, you're going to run into the street. And you tell them no, and they make you chase them. How many times are you going to let them make you chase them? For us, it was once. Whap, whap, whap. I said, don't go in the street. Ah, they don't know. All they know is it's not worth going into the street. Now they know. I'll explain it to them when they can actually speak English. For now, just do what I say. Just do what I say. Because I'm a mean guy and want to ruin your fun. No, I'd like to just keep you alive for a few more years. That's how it is with little children. You don't explain things to them. You just tell them what to do. No, don't stick your finger in there. It's a cool little hole. Let me stick a paper clip in it. No, what do we do? We plug up all the holes. They get big enough to stay, take them off, we smack their little hands and say, don't touch. We don't talk to them about amperage and kilowatts and voltage. We just say, don't touch. So the Bible's like a book for us kids. God's telling us what's going to hurt us. We don't have to understand it. We just got to do it. And as we mature and grow older, we start to understand why some of the, these, these things might hurt us. But whether we understand or not, we just can't do it because it's going to ruin people. The consequences of David's sin. David ruined Uriah's family. The judgment, David's family was ruined in turn. David stole Uriah's wife, and he did it privately, so God made sure his wives were taken publicly. Before Absalom was killed, listen to what happened. Absalom said to Ahitophel, uh, Ahitophel was one of his key counselors, give us your advice, what should we do? So we kicked dad out of town, now what? Ahitophel answered, lie with your father's concubines whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you've made yourself a stench in your father's nostrils and the hands of everyone with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof and he lay with his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. You know, a coup, a rebellion, isn't the most strong political thing you can have. He's always wondering if these guys are going to turn their backs on him now and go back with David. How do I establish my kingdom, Ahitophel? What do I do? Well, you've got to convince everybody this is a one-way journey, and there ain't no reconciliation between you and your dad. There ain't no going back. Here's how to do that. So he did it. He put up a tent on the palace so everybody could see him sleep with his, with his dad's concubines. That'll do it. It's like these guys had a whole bottle of idiot pills, and they just kept taking them. So, why is this story in the Bible? Nef definitely not pleasant reading. It's not encouraging. It's somewhat enlightening, sort of. But why is it in there? I'll tell you why. Romans 15, 4. It says, these things were written down for our learning. So that we could learn something. There's this old saying that I just love it. It says, a wise man learns from the mistakes of others. An average man learns from his own mistakes. And a fool never learns. Learns from no one's mistakes. These things were written down so that we don't have to go where these guys have gone before. It's, it's easy to disassociate ourselves from this story, by the way, because um, I would never do that. Big sin. I'm only into little sin. Okay. Yes, there are bigger sins and there are smaller sins, granted. 
there are bigger canyons and smaller canyons. Which one do you want to jump off of? You know, you can jump off of one that's only 100 feet high. You can go to the Grand Canyon, jump down a mile. It'd be quite a ride. Yeah, there are bigger sins and there are smaller sins. I love this illustration. I've used it a lot. I'll use it again. Gallon of ice cream and a teaspoon of manure. Over the top, mix it in. Who wants a scoop? <laughs> Big sin. Okay, a thimble spoon of manure mixed in. Little sin. Who wants a scoop? There's no such thing as good sin. Nobody wants it. But we think we do because we think it's going to give us some pleasure. I mean, honestly, sin is fun. That's why people do it, or at least they think it is. It is for a little while. It said of Amnon, after he raped his sister, as soon as the deed was done, he hated her. In fact, it says he hated her more than he loved her before the deed. Well, that didn't work out at all like he expected. Evil, evil, evil. All scripture, the Bible says, is inspired by God and is useful for teaching the truth, for rebuking error, correcting faults, and giving instruction for right living. God wrote these things down or had them written down for us so that we could learn from the mistakes of others so we wouldn't follow in their footsteps. Not just in the big things, but also in the little things by looking at the consequences of sin, wanting to have nothing whatsoever to do with sin. Because the Bible says this, Don't, do not deceive yourselves, no one makes a fool of God. You will reap exactly what you plant. I used to think it meant if you did bad, bad would come to you. That's the generic of it. But exactly what you plant. You know, you plant a corn, corn seed, you grow corn. You don't grow apples or figs. You grow what you plant. Well, David killed man with a sword, so the sword came to his house. He took a wife, he lost his wives. He reaped exactly what he sowed. The Bible says you live by the sword, you die by the sword. So just think about your sin that way that it's going to come back in spades on you, whatever that sin is. And hopefully, it'll be enough of a lesson to keep us from wanting to sin. So, I wrote down some of the consequences of sin. I came up with eight. You can come up with your own list. Misery, desolation, discord, division, war, pain, suffering, death. Sign me up. I want some. You know? We sin because we want to. But we also sin because we can't help it. Both are true. Sometimes we can help it and we do it. But sometimes we just can't help it and we do it. There's something wrong with us. We came out of the factory with bad programming. Something broke. We can't help it. Well, what happens next? If human beings are broken and it's apparent by the fact that we sin even when we don't want to. And it's apparent that we sin when we want to. Why would anybody who's not broken want to do wrong? But we do. So what hope do humans have? You know, I know there's a lot of religions that say everybody's eventually going to end up in heaven. Really? You want to live there if they end up there? I don't. That's not going to be heaven. If Amnon lives there, you want to go to heaven with Amnon? Hitler lives there, you want to go to heaven with Hitler? 
Saddam Hussein, everybody goes to heaven. See, heaven's only for people who don't do these things, but we're all potential candidates because we're all broke. So something in us has to be changed before we're fit for heaven and we can't change ourselves. That's what it means to have a savior. Somebody that can do something for us that we can't do for ourselves. We can't just decide one day, I'm going to be perfect so I can be worthy of heaven. We're broken. You can't be perfect. It's impossible. I could decide I'm going to be as fast as a cheetah and I'm going to run 70 miles an hour. I can decide that all day, but it ain't going to happen because I'm just not capable. It's, it's totally impossible. I can't do it. I can't cleanse myself of my own sin and I can't fix my broken soul. It's just impossible. I can't do it. But Jesus can do it for me. There's a passage in Romans chapter 7 I'd like to read to you that talks about our brokenness. It says this, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? I need a savior. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I told you at the very beginning, I warned you it was going to be a sad story. Make you feel maybe a little dirty and ugly inside. It does me. But maybe we could redeem it at the end. Yeah. There's redemption because the story doesn't end with loss. It ends with hope. That anybody, even in these most vile of circumstances, can be redeemed, can be forgiven, and can be fixed. And brought to a state, we call it heaven, when we go there, where these things will never be seen or heard from again. It will no longer be possible to sin in heaven. So here's what the Lord requires of us. Confess our sin. Believe Jesus died for us and rose again. And choose to follow and obey God through Jesus. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, please help us at those crucial moments to remember that sin bears consequences. And the consequences can be much bigger and much uglier than we ever would have anticipated. And may that scare us straight. And may we hate and be disgusted with sin as much as you are, so that we would never want to do it again. And that should we fall into it, should we be trapped and snared, that we will come to you with confession to receive your blessing and your forgiveness. Thank you so much for reaching down into the dirt to pick us up. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for our sins. Please help us to be worthy of him by accepting his gift of salvation and pursuing a holy and pure life. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.